Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody watching online. We are fired up about today because today we're going to talk about the Grace Home. So Easter 2019, we did something very different. We did a capital campaign, never done a capital campaign before, and usually capital campaigns for churches are to build a building for the church. But we said what we want to do is not build a building for Grace, we want to build a better community. We searched and searched all over the community. Who should we partner with? And all roads led to CRI right here. This is Terry Hurley. Uh, it's my pleasure to be with CRI, and CRI has been around for 45 years. In fact, our very first house was on uh, North 13th Street over by Washington and um, uh, Liberty High School. Uh, good catch, Terry. Good, well, I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> so uh, CRI. So last year we supported 1,200 people across uh, Maryland and Virginia, and that's our job. Our job is to support people. It's not to care for people. It's not to tell them what to do. It's to support them in their lives here in the community. So it's all about community. It's all about us supporting them and all about them making those choices to live here and to live with us in this uh, beautiful community we have. Thank you, John. Thank you, Terry, so much. This is our very own Anna Anazar, Director of... Compassion and Justice Initiative. She's going to tell us about this home that we're building with CRI in which about seven different individuals-ish somewhere around there are going to live in this home. Go take it away, Anna. Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for being part of this project. Uh, it, it wouldn't happen without this incredible congregation. So as Pastor John said, we launched this campaign last year and I've been there on site uh, for the old house and then for demolition and then for pouring the concrete and then for putting the roofs on and windows and everything. It's really exciting. Uh, the house is located in 2244 North Glebe Road. So if that's on your way, please make sure that you drive by and you're going to see this incredible house that we're building. Uh, but I, what I really wanted to share with you guys, and you're going to see on screen a quote uh, for one of the family members, I had the privilege of talking to one of the family members of a future resident in our Grace home. Uh, her name is Patricia Schutz, and uh, her daughter's name is Teresa. Teresa has been uh, with CRI since 2009, and she absolutely loves CRI. She loves the programs. She loves uh, the, the homes that she's been living and all the things that she does with the organization. But most of all, Teresa is really excited to be in a new house. Uh, she loves, loves to walk around, just enjoy the neighborhood, talking to people. Uh, but one of the things that her mom shared with us is that Teresa loves the independence that CRI provides to her. And this is the, what makes the whole difference, right? And what excites me the most about this project and what I'm really proud about being part of it is that this is a message about love. Uh, this is a campaign that we came together as a church to show uh, people who sometimes are forgotten by society, and we're showing them that we see them. We see them, we love them, and we want to be there for them. We want them to be part of this community. So thank you so much for being part of this incredible project. It's been really fun. Yeah, it's awesome. So we want to show you something that we have done together, what we want to celebrate today. We want to give this to Terry. Here we go. So we have raised since Easter $250,000. Terry's also the CFO, so he particularly likes the jumbo check, right? <laughs> 
Terry, thank you so much for all that you do, CRI. You guys do great work and have done that for decades in this area, so we appreciate that greatly. We uh, just count it a privilege to be able to partner with you. And same here. And, uh, Anna wants to tell us about the keychains. Everybody got a keychain oh, yeah. on the way in. Yeah, this is really exciting, too. Uh, if you got a keychain on the way in, please pull it out right now. Take a look at it. If you don't, make sure that you grab one. Uh, but what I really want to share about this keychain is... This is a present from us to you guys. First of all, as a thank you, because this project was only, uh, was only able to be done because of you, because of your generosity and because of your support. But mostly, we want this to be a reminder to you. Uh, we want you to look at this keychain every day and be completely happy with yourselves for being part of it. To take a minute, pray for this house, pray for the residents, and keep praying for this incredible project. It's all about you guys. You did it all. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's awesome. Have one, one big round of applause. Thank you so much. Very much, Anna and Terry. Thank you, Pastor Derek, man, doing stagehand duties. There he is. Give him a round of applause, man. He loves it. He's British. He loves the applause. I, uh, I just want to say, I just want to acknowledge one thing. This is something, if you've been around Grace a long time, then, then you know this. You've heard me say this. We rarely, I rarely talk about money. One of the things I usually say is I have no idea what, what anybody gives. And I say that just in case, you know, when we are talking about money, money's a big part of our lives. If I happen to lock eyes with somebody, somebody didn't think, why is he looking at me? He's, you know, okay, I have no... Zero idea, and I still don't. I still don't have any idea. But I was talking to somebody. Uh, this guy, he's in he's in real estate. He's done very, very well in real estate. And when he was in his late twenties, never been to church before. Not a church guy. Was uh, living in Atlanta. Went to a church similar to Grace in Atlanta. This kind of a church for people who don't go to church. Was there for a while. Um, learned about Jesus and said, you know, that, you know, probably I think he said something like, that's not exactly the Jesus who I thought Jesus was. I really want to follow this Jesus. And he did. And after he'd been following for a little bit of while, he said, you know what? I, I should, I should give towards this mission. I should give towards this mission of this church. And it's a big deal for him. And so he decided at the end of the year, he was going to give, like he was going to give a tithe, 10% of his income. He was going to give a large amount of money. It's a big, big deal. It's a big spiritual deal to him. And he gave, and what he said was, it was such a big moment for him. The, the downside to that, kind of the letdown to that, is that nobody acknowledged that gift. Like, it was a big spiritual moment. And that, man, that really, I said, hmm, that got me to thinking. You know, I, I, I don't know, so it's not like I'm going to walk up to you and say, hey, thank you so much. I, I can't do that. But what I want to make sure that I do right now is acknowledge what you have done. Like, I don't, I don't know who you are, but you know who you are, and you know what you've done. And I just want to say what you have done is special, and it's made a difference. It's, it's the thing. I, I know a lot of pastors, and there are some pastors out there who really have a passion and a burden to follow the mission that Jesus lays out for us in Matthew 20, to reach beyond ourselves. Like, we often say this. It's been said about the church for years. The church is the only institution in the world which is created for its non-members. So it's, it's to be turned out. It's not for who's on inside, who's on the outside. And there's some pastors who really want to do that. And there's a lot of churches that do capital campaigns, everybody. They do capital campaigns to build a building for the church. I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with that. We don't have a building. 
We did a capital campaign not to build a building for us to build a better community. Not one person came to me and said, hey, man, we can't do that. We've got to build it for us. Now, the reality is that in a lot of communities, it's say, hey, if that's fine, pastor, do your capital campaign, but do it for us first, and then we'll talk about something on the outside. And nobody came and said that, and I just want to applaud you because of your heart and the fact that you are living out this great mission to be a church for people who don't go to church, which is a place for people to explore faith and people who have faith just to go deeper in following this mission of Christ. And that is really exceptional. So you know who you are. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for giving towards this mission. To, I mean, any, any money that's given, been given towards grace, this is the kind of thing that happens when, when you give. We build grace homes or we help to create a place where people who've never been to church before, and we are eight times the national average, right? So the average church in America this morning, 5% or less of the people in that church self-classify as a non-church goer. We're at 37%. Because you all are serving and giving and praying to create a place where everybody feels welcome. Like we said a few weeks ago, to build a highway, which is really what Christ has called us to do. So I want to make sure I say today, thank you very much for what you've done to make that happen. Couldn't be possible without you. Okay. With that being said, we're going to continue our journey. We started at the beginning of this year, journeying through the biography of Jesus as given to us in John. There's four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're on John. A lot of metaphor, a lot of perspective here. Something that um, we need to say as we begin is that John starts out in John chapter 1 with these words at the beginning. Now, this is a dominant theme, so we we got to just... As we study this book, if we're going to understand what he's really trying to say, we have to understand from this perspective. He says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Light in John means understanding, knowledge, education, learning, understanding. Darkness is a misunderstanding. So many scholars will call the biography of John the misunderstood gospel. And the reason they call it the misunderstood gospel is there's so many misunderstandings. People don't understand Jesus. They don't understand who he is. And so John... Scholars have said this for years, gives us the clearest picture of exactly who Jesus is. So if you're a follower of Jesus, John is writing us to say, it's human nature that over a period of time, things might get fuzzy. They might start off fuzzy, but eventually they always move to fuzzy. And John says, okay, let's just be really crystal clear. This is who Jesus is. If you're not a follower of Jesus, John is writing this to a group of people who are also not followers of Jesus. He says, okay, just in case you're saying, I don't want to follow Jesus, let's just make sure you are saying you don't want to follow the right Jesus, right? Because if you're rejecting Jesus, let's just make sure you're rejecting the correct Jesus because here he is. So this is why John is writing. He says in John 2020, which this is the year 2020, I just think it's awesome that this is John 2020. He says this, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So what he is saying here in this biography is that we truly see Jesus for who he is. We will rejoice because it's awesome, but Jesus is often misunderstood. So this is his purpose in writing. He wants us to learn, to have knowledge, to be educated. Isaiah chapter 5 says this, therefore my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. What is happening there? There's a group of people who had a misunderstanding about God. He says, you are exiles. You're separated. You're going into captivity. They were destroyed by the country of Babylon. Their lives were a wreck. And he says, why did that happen? A lack of understanding. Hosea says the same thing. My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Education, education, 
education, Jesus says that we love God and we worship God with our minds and that we must learn. Frederick Douglass, who was born into slavery right here in the eastern shore of Maryland, a brilliant a brilliant guy, an exceptional speaker, says this, slavery and education are incompatible. Slavery and education are incompatible. They don't go together. So the way that we are going to be lifted up and out in this biography of John is by having a clear understanding, by educating ourselves, getting a clear picture of exactly who Jesus Christ is. Specifically, and we're going to just go overboard on this over and over again, from a first century Jewish perspective. We're going to want to see Jesus Christ from a 21st century perspective, particularly a 21st century American perspective. We will never understand. We will never see Jesus clearly if we're looking through those lenses. We have to look through the lens of a first century Jewish perspective, and that's going to take some learning to do. One of the things that we do, right, in the, in the American church world, so to speak, the average churchgoer in the American world, we are sermon junkies. So the average, like, really bought-in churchgoer in America, like, we listen to lots of sermons throughout the week. We will read books, Christian books, and we'll listen to all. I I talk to people, say, you know what, I listen to three or four sermons a week. This is just what we do. This is what we do. This is the way we are. But here's what we're going to do for this entire year, and our community groups especially. In a first-century Jewish perspective, they would take one passage of Scripture, one Scripture, one topic, one thought, and they would focus on that for an extended period of time, like for an entire week. They wouldn't take a multitude of passages and a multitude of topics. They take one topic, one passage, they pray about it, they think about it, they discuss it, they just churn it over and over, and they talk about how can I apply it? How can I apply that one thing? And that's how the real change, the real life, the real transformation happens. So if you're not in a community group, I would encourage you get in one this year because this is what we're going to do. And at the end of it, I know everybody can't go on this, but we're going to cap it off with a trip to Israel. Yes, because what an amazing learning experience it is going to Israel. And I tell you what, the, the, the success of going, taking an Israel trip, is such a great learning experience. Three things are needed. Number one, great price. Great price, great hotels, and a great guide. That's the trifecta of a trip to Israel. Great price, great hotels, great guide. We got all three, and we're going to go November 11th to the 19th. There'll be information about that coming out soon. Now, let's get to this water-to-wine story. This is the very first sign or miracle of Jesus. Here we go. We have to ask ourselves the question, why? All right, reading John chapter 2. On third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. Now, I tried that because Jesus did it. Krista said, John, the baby's diaper needs to be changed. And I said, woman. Okay. We'll try to explain this in a second. He said, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She totally ignores him. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so they're filled to the brim. Then... He told them, 
Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Just by the way, this is like the non-miracle miracle, because nobody knows he did the miracle. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Hey, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. They're a little bit drunk, right? But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. He calls it a sign, everybody. A sign. And from the Jewish perspective, the word means they're seeing something that means something deeper. There is something greater. So they know that. So what is the something greater? That's the question we have to ask. What is the something greater that is being pointed to here? Questions are really important. We have to ask this passage. It's really important. The very first sign, the very first miracle, he could have done it anywhere, could have done anything he wanted to do, anything he wanted to do. He chose a wedding, and he chose to turn water into wine. We have to ask ourselves the question why. Questions are really important. It's very important from a Jewish rabbi. Jesus is a rabbi from a Jewish rabbi's perspective. They ask lots of questions. That's how you learn. That's how you understand, by asking really good questions. Jesus asked 307 questions in the four different biographies about Jesus. 307. You know how many questions were asked of him? He was asked 183 questions. Do you know how many questions Jesus answered of those 183? Three. What does that tell us? That could tell us, that could tell us that only three questions were good questions that 180 of the questions were actually not good questions. Einstein is famous for saying this. If he was given an hour to solve a problem and his life depended on it, he would spend the first 55 minutes figuring out what is the right question to ask in the last five minutes solving the problem. Because once you figure out, Einstein says, the right question to ask, solving it will be simple. So what's the right question that we ask here? I got to tell you this. A lot of people... The question they ask is, well, was that wine or grape juice? Was this Welch's grape juice? I'm serious. I've heard it preached about. I've read notable scholars talk about it. Is that the question we should be asking? I don't think so. It's not the question. The question is, why did he do this at a wedding? Why this sign? What is the real question? Because if we start with the correct question, the right question, we will lead us to the right place. Obviously, the reason he does it here is because the story in the Bible, the story of Jesus and the story of the entire narrative of the Bible is this is a love story. This is a love story with you in mind, that God loves you, that he's thought about you. He's thinking about you when you don't think he's thinking about you. He's thinking about you when you think he does not exist. He's thinking about you when you're at the top of the mountain or you're at the bottom of the valley. He's always thinking about you, and here he has come because a love story is always a rescue story when we're in danger. A love story is about celebrating us with joy. This is what a love story is. And so the reason Jesus decides to do his first miracle at a wedding is because weddings are a moment of celebrating love. Two people come together. It's a covenant, a covenant of love. It's not just a covenant for buying and selling land. A wedding is a covenant of love, to celebrate love. And this is why he does this. So we see that Mary comes to Jesus 
And she says, Jesus, they have no more wine. Why would she go to Jesus and ask this question? Here's the, here's the reason. You would go to the groom because the groom was responsible for supplying the wine. You would go to the groom. Now, Jesus isn't the groom of this wedding. We see later that the master of ceremonies goes to the actual real groom and says, hey, you gave us all this great wine. You know, why did you wait till now to do this, right? That's the appropriate thing because he's the groom. Why would Mary go to Jesus? Well, we're told this in John chapter 3 that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, that he is the groom. All throughout the Bible, there's this wedding. Like the Bible begins with a wedding, it ends with a wedding. It's a story of love, a story of a wedding from start to finish all over the place. Mary knows this and that's why she goes to Jesus because she knows when the true Messiah shows up, when God shows up, according to Daniel chapter seven, when God shows up like a man, when God shows up in Daniel seven says this, that God will come and will supply wine and that will bring love. And so she comes and so the story is this. That she knows, she knows that this is a love story. She knows because everything that's happened to her, that Jesus is the Messiah. So all of this is being fulfilled so that we are really, really clear that this is a love story we're about. Now, he calls her woman. And I said a few minutes ago, and I think you guys probably picked up it. Maybe you've read it uh, a number of times. Like, why in the world, why in the world would he just say woman? I mean, that just, that sounds a little rude, doesn't it? I mean, could you get, could you get away with that in your home? I mean, could you try it this afternoon? See how that, I mean, see how that works. But here, here's the thing. There's actually nothing rude about the word itself. There's, there's no, there's no disrespect in the, in the technical word, but I want to tell you why the word is used because the biography of John is fully immersed in the book of Genesis. I mean, it's the second Genesis. First book of the Bible in the beginning. Biography of John starts out this way, in the beginning. And then everywhere you go throughout it, you have to keep in mind. So from a first century Jewish perspective, as they're reading the biography of John, they're like, oh my gosh, we're fully. So we need to be thinking about the book of Genesis because everything in this is we are totally immersed in Genesis. Well, who is called woman in the book of Genesis? Well, you think about, you think about Eve. Now, here's the thing about Genesis. It starts out, right, and you have this week. Now, if you're asking yourself the question, and I, I, I have to cover this all the time because there's so much controversy about this. If you say to yourself, so if I read Genesis and it says everything is like one week and that means the world is, the universe is 6,000 years old, so that's what it's saying. Wrong question. Nobody from a first century Jewish perspective is that. We've only started asking that question in the last few hundred years, everybody. Just FYI. Nobody in the church has been asking that. So wrong question. That's not what it's trying to say. What it's trying to say as you read Genesis is that there's a pattern and a purpose for all of creation. That's what it's saying. It's not saying the world is 6,000 years old. It's not saying the world was created in six 24-hour days. What it is saying is, is that there's a pattern and a purpose for all of creation. But at the end of that creation week that's listed in Genesis, how does it end? How does it crescendo? It crescendos with a wedding. John, starting in verse number 19, at the end of the prologue, John 1, 19, ends the prologue, all the way to the end of the wedding of Cana is one week. So John is structured this way. You have a prologue, then you have one week, and then at the end of the wedding of Cana, you have no idea of a timeline, and then you have the very last week of Jesus' life. There's a week and a week. What happens at the end of Jesus' first week of his ministry here? A wedding. What happens at the end of creation? A wedding. So the two just jive together. He calls her woman. So now we're thinking about Eve, we're thinking about the garden. 
Now, in Hebrew, we wouldn't get this. But in the Hebrew, if you read Hebrews, and from their perspective, again, the Bible bends over backwards. The Hebrew bends over backwards so that Adam does not name her. Because in the biblical text, from a Jewish perspective, first century, whatever you name, you own. Whatever you name, you own. It's like you go into a store and it says, you, you break it, you buy it. You've seen those signs before? You break it, you buy it. Well, in the Bible, you name something, you own that. So God says to Adam, okay, name all the animals because you have dominion over that. I, want, I need you to take care of that. You're in charge of that. You have dominion. You're in charge. You're in control of that. I need you to do that. But when it comes to the woman, the Hebrew makes it so clear, there's no way, Adam, that you're naming her. It's like when Moses at the burning bush, that famous scene, he says, okay, God, what, what is your name? Burning bush, what is your name? And God says, basically, I am who I am. In other words, I'm not giving you my name. Why? Because you can't control me. You don't own me. So everybody would name their gods, Baal and Ra and all that stuff, because that's how you control them. It's God saying, you don't control me. So it's bending over backwards. So when you read in the scriptures, and some people think, the Bible is advocating patriarchy. It's not advocating. It's, it's purporting it. It's not promoting it. So Adam names all the animals. But when it comes to the woman, he doesn't aim, name the woman. Now, here's the other thing we need to know. When things break down and they go off track as they were not intended to be, we're told after they made those decisions that at what time Adam does what? The moment that happens, he names her Eve and the patriarchy and the oppression begins. What you need to know is that is not the way it was intended to be. Now, here's another thing you need to know. It's really important. Every single creation story, ancient creation story, the world is created. Every single one, the world is created, and this is just the way it is. It stinks. This is just the way. It, you don't like it? That's just the way it is. There's only one that's completely different, and it's the one in Genesis. And it says there was a world created, and everything was right, and there wasn't oppression. There wasn't all that stuff going on. Things were right. Things were right. But decisions were made, and things are no longer the way they are intended to be. And so now we have this love story of Jesus Christ who's coming back to right all the wrongs, to turn it back into the way it's supposed to be. This is unique in Genesis, unique from any other creation story of, of, a, of an ancient creation story. The Messiah is coming. Now, Mary, also Jesus' mother, knows this. When the Messiah comes, the Messiah is going to bring joy. Because the Messiah loves us. It is a love story. And we're told in Joel, we're told in Amos, and we're told in a number of Jewish writings that when the Messiah comes, there will be an abundance of wine. Matter of fact, Joel and Amos say the mountains will be dripping with wine. They'll be dripping. There'll be an abundance. So Jesus is in a small town, small town of Canaan. They don't need... They, they, they don't need 180 gallons of wine. That's far too much wine. So what he does is he gives us this super abundance of wine. Why? Because that's a sign that he is the Messiah. Because when the Messiah comes, there will be an abundance of wine. Wine in the Bible symbolizes joy. And there will be an abundance of joy when the Messiah comes. So I have one fill in the blank for just one. And that is, is this story right from the start is a love story. And a love story is always a joy story. A love story is always a joy story. There might be some bad points in the love story, but it's always going to come back to joy. Love story is always going to come back to joy over and over again. God wants to bring you joy. Now, if that's been misunderstood, what, what John is saying in his biography, man, if you've misunderstood that, like if you think it's some other story, then you're never going to get the clear understanding. You're never going to find life to the fullest, as he says in John 10. You'll never experience all of that life unless you know it is a love story. Now, 
You can read the studies in, in the United States of America. This has been consistent for the past 25 years. You ask people in America, what is the Christian church? Number one answer is not love. Love actually is way, way down here. Somewhere along the lines, we got fuzzy on it. And I know there's a lot of reasons for that. It could be complicated. But the point is this. It is a love story. Number one answer in America is the Christian church is a judgment story. That's the number one answer. At a distant second, it's a rule story. Neither one of them are correct. John is saying right here from the get-go, if you really want to understand Jesus, you've got to start with love. You've got to figure out that's a love story. That's what he's showing us. And love always brings joy to us. This is the starting point. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves the person sitting next to you. Jesus loves the person you can't stand. And the person sitting next to you could be the same person. Right? But that's what it's about, that God has you in mind and wants to bring joy to your life. This is the story that John is trying to get across to us. We said this last week, but I love this quote so much from Martin Luther King Jr. Love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. It's the only force capable of doing that. And this is the story that we're being told. Now, what does it have to do with you? Because the series is called, Who Are You? Finding the true you. How are you going to find the true you? This has everything to do with you. Because we're told here in John that we're all created in the image of God. Genesis tells us we're creating the image. In other words, that we understand our story as we reflect his story. Because we're creating his image. So whatever we see him doing as we learn about him, if we just, as he says, go and do likewise, we will find joy. We will find life. We will find happiness. We get diverted off the path all the time, do our own thing, think that's going to really bring us joy. And what John is saying is if we will just follow him, that's really what we're looking for. If we'll just not get sidetracked, that's what we're looking for. If we go out and just love, if we bring joy, if we see ourselves as joy givers. That's why today is the perfect day to celebrate the Grace Home. Because you guys have been a bunch of joy givers. This is why we wanted to do this. Because this is what it means to reflect Jesus Christ, to bring, to bring joy to other people. We find our story in his story. So the thought is this this week, right? One thought. We're going to follow their example from a Jewish perspective. What is the one thought? What is the one passage that we can focus on? How can we bring joy to people? This is what it's calling us. If it's a love story, how can, we, how can you bring joy? Think about it. What do you need to do? Some of us need to make phone calls today. Some of us need to go knock on a door today. Some of us need to do something. Send a text message. Send an email. Something. We need to resolve something sometimes with somebody. Or we need to go and encourage somebody who's in the middle of a dark time. I can think of all kinds of examples. from. I think about the time when this, this church started. I was at the, one of the lowest points of my entire life. I didn't want to be in the ministry anymore. I mean, I was low as low could be. But for some reason, felt this slight nudging that we should begin the church. I remember my buddy Charles. He called me right after we made the decision. And he just said, left a message on the record. He says, I just want you to know, uh, we're with you. We believe in you and we support you and I'll be there. Man, if you can just show up for people who are in a dark time, that means so much. That brings joy. Can you do that? Is there somebody that you can do that for? Because that's the true you. That's how you live it out. 
It could be something far more simple, just helping somebody, encouraging somebody. You know what? There's a local radio station here that encourages you what to, to pay for the person behind you in the drive-thru. That's a small thing, but still, they're big, they're small. What can you do? How can you be a joy giver? Because you and I, you and I will never figure out, we'll never figure out who we really are until we find ourselves in his story and his story is that he's a joy giver. This seems to be a dominant theme in him. So we have to ask ourselves that question. What can we do this week to reflect that? Uh, Satima Ghali, uh, former NFL player, he played uh, for the couple years for the New England Patriots. The Patriots are not in the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> They're not in the Super Bowl this year. Played a couple years for them. And he says this. It's really good. Right, right for this? He says this. The most important conversation that you'll ever have is with yourself about what you believe about yourself. The most important conversation that you're going to have is with yourself about what you believe about yourself. Now, what do you believe about yourself? It's a lot of things we believe about ourselves. What John is saying in his biography, do you believe what is most important is that you are a part of a love story, that God loves you so much he's coming to rescue you? Is that the first thing you think of? Do you think of judgment? Do you think of rules? Do you think of restriction? What do you think of? It's a love story. He's coming because he wants to bring you joy and abundance of wine, all of that. And, and, and if that's the case, that you are to be a joy giver. Because if that's what you believe about yourself, John is saying you will find your true self. And along the way, you'll find a life that you never Never could have imagined. Once we know who we are, this is what psychologists tell us, once we are clear on our identity, we'll have more peace, more purpose, we'll make better decisions and have fewer regrets when we understand who we are. And this is who we are. We sang this song today, last song we sang. He wants to bring new wine out of us. Now we're going to have communion today. Nobody move, we'll do communion in just a second. I just want to explain something about communion. The cup, you're going to be given a cup. Now, communion's open to everybody here. You can take it, not take it. If you're worried about, oh my gosh, if I don't take it, people are going to look at me, that you're not in that kind of church. Okay, this is just totally different. Take it if you want, don't take it. But if you do take it, I want to explain the cup. I just want to explain the cup. A cup in Scripture represents your future. So Jesus is in the garden. And it's the night he's being arrested and he's going to be beaten mercilessly, like almost to the point of death. And he's going to hang on a cross, the most humiliating, agonizing way to die. And he says in his prayer, he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. What's he saying? He's saying, I I don't really prefer this to be my future. Is there any way we can pass? He says, but nevertheless, let your will, but mine, not, not let my will, but your will be done. Right? That's what he says. The cup of so as you hold that cup today, if you take communion, as you hold that cup today, what you are saying is my future as I drink in, and what John later explains to us is this, this drink that becomes supernatural, empowered by the Holy Spirit. As you drink it in, you're drinking all of Christ into you to live out that Christ life, to be a person that brings joy to other people. So as you take it today, think about that. That's what you're saying. I want this to be my future. I want to live the Christ life. I want to know who I truly am in his story. I'm going to find my story in his story, and I'm going to look for ways all week long all week long, empowered by his spirit to be a joy giver in his name. Now, listen, some stuff is going to happen this week. You all are going to do some stuff. There's some things that you're going to do. You're going to try it. There's going to be at least one person in this room is going, I'm going to do that. And if you have a story, please share it. 
please email us. Please let us know because some awesome things are going to happen as we drink in that supernatural wine and we say, I want to live out that life of Christ. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the richness of your word, for the clarity that we find in this biography of John. Help us as we embark on this year-long journey to really see Jesus for who he is that we might find the abundance of life talked about by Jesus in the scriptures. Thank you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.